PM board bombs. Welcome back to another EM Board Bombs podcast, where board studying continues to be enjoyable. My name is Blake Briggs, comma MD. I'm joined today by a very special guest. Oh, thank you. <laughs> we have the venerable, well-respected in his field, Doctor Crick Watkins. We would be honored if you would join us. There's often other adjectives used to describe me. <laughs> Most that should not be repeated here. Dr. Crick Watkins, he hails from Kansas City, Missouri. He went to the, get ready for this long name, Kansas City University of Medicine and Biosciences. For short, that's KCUMB. He completed his EM residency at Wake Forest University, Baptist Health, and he did two fellowships because he's that good. He did a fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine, and he also did a fellowship in international emergency medicine. Yeah, that's probably a little too many. <laughs> Training's got to stop at some point. Exactly. exactly. Hey, lifelong student. His major passions of, in emergency medicine include peer support, uh, especially for substance use disorders, social emergency medicine, and of course, really just anything pediatrics. Uh, and I know for sure the residents appreciate working with him. They love uh, the knowledge bombs he drops on shift, especially when it relates to, you know, easy topics like, I don't know, congenital heart disease. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're going to talk about congenital heart disease and uh, really an honor having you, Dr. Watkins. I appreciate you coming on the show. Well, thank you for that warm introduction, Blake. And yeah, it is uh, an honor to be here and a chance to uh, chat a little bit about something that gets everyone's heart racing a little bit, which is the thought about A, pediatrics, and B, worship pediatrics with congenital heart issues. <laughs> yeah. Who doesn't feel comfortable at taking care of kids? Raise your hand. All right. Who doesn't feel comfortable about taking care of sick kids? <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully we can uh, at least bring you a little bit closer to comfort where yeah. it comes to some of these issues. Well, you know, we don't have an obvious script for things. We love just kind of to talk about approaching congenital heart disease in children. And he'll be the first one to tell you, this is not supposed to teach everything about congenital heart disease. Uh, this podcast, this short episode we're doing here is going to be a primer for your approach as an emergency doctor. Absolutely. So our course today, we're going to be talking about really some common issues. And I love the way you're starting this off is really just the first step is recognizing the fact that we're not often going to be the people that catch these because I feel like no one's talking about that. You know, I feel like all the podcasts and learning courses are always talking about, oh, this is how you diagnose this. But no one's talking about the, oh, this kid was corrected or had surgery, but what do you do now? Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I want to spend the first part of our talk just going through the kid that has been surgically corrected. And just as you're pointing out, the overwhelming majority of these are going to be caught on prenatal screening ultrasounds or in uh, their immediate stay in the NICU thereafter when something is noticeably wrong. So most of these will have undergone some sort of corrective action or are in process of having that done in a way that, that takes a lot of the discovery out of play. And just as you're saying, there are way too many variations on all of these congenital lesions and the eponyms that go along with all of the surgeries, your Glens, your Fontans, your Hemifontans, and so on and so forth. That's way too much to memorize and, and learn. And so what I want to focus on is more of what is a common approach that you should have to these surgically corrected kids. The other problem is all those names sound like the Italian mafia. <laughs> 
I think they were all members of it at some point. <laughs> so first off, what should a common approach be to when you get that kid that walks into your emergency department or rather carried in most of the time by their parent, and you find out that they have this extensive congenital heart history. First off, get as much of that history from the parents as you possibly can. These parents have lived through some very crazy situations. They have had to essentially learn crash courses on pediatric uh, and neonatal anatomy and oftentimes know a lot more about the details of the surgery and what baseline is for their kid. So you need to rely heavily on what the parents can tell you of what to expect and what has been done for their child. The other thing is you also want to get EKG on all of these kids. Uh, we'll talk a little bit here in a second about how arrhythmias are a common complication. Chest x-ray, more for comparison to prior films if you have that available within your institution. You want to check your pre- and post-ductal sats, and what I mean by that is checking oxygen saturation to the right upper extremity and comparing that to any of the other extremities, as well as getting a right upper extremity blood pressure uh, and a lower extremity, either left or right, for comparison's sake. And when you're talking about measuring pulses in the preductal right arm and either leg, what number would you see typically? Um, when you're feeling for pulse strength, where you want to feel it is in the right brachial region, and then comparing to that of the bilateral femoral region and feeling more for strength of that sensation. Any sort of discrepancy there should immediately be followed by checking right upper extremity blood pressure compared to a lower extremity blood pressure. And anything that's greater than a 20 millimeter of mercury difference between the right upper extremity and the lower extremities is highly suggestive of a decreased perfusion from the aorta. Cool. Very helpful. The next thing that would come up is what we're really what are we going to be looking out for in these surgically corrected kids as very common complications? So for the kids that have been more recently repaired, so you're going to be looking for a lot of the things that are are common types of thoracotomy complications, same sort of things that you're going to see in adults. So mm -hmm. if it's been done in the last few weeks, looking for complications such as mediastinitis, um, pneumothorax, you may see a large pericardial effusion, as well as just uh, infections with any sort of surgical wound. Mm -hmm. Most of these kids are going to be at a profound point of stability before they're ever released from the PICU and back out into the community. There are all sorts of immediate post-CT surgery issues that are the worry of a pediatric intensivist that aren't necessarily things that you're going to have to worry about coming through your door. But for the immediate complications, that would be those would be high on my list. But there are some other issues that could also have a more delayed presentation, such as any sort of ligation of the thoracic duct. You're going to have leakage of lymph fluid into the intrathoracic cavity and potentially presenting as a large fluid collection as a chylothorax. Uh, other things, you can have sternal non-union or from that zipper procedure that you don't ever have reconnection of the sternum that is felt more as a clicking or shifting motion underneath your thumbs as you palpate on the sternum. Is that typically painful? It's extremely painful. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> sounds awful. Also, the chylothorax sounds like a Pokemon too. <laughs> 
Um, what else we got for complications? So other things that you could possibly see would be <laughs> any sort of injury to the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which may present more as strider in mm. younger kids mm-hmm. when you have that uh, unilateral paralysis of the vocal cord, as well as uh, ligation of the phrenic nerve, which may lead to uh, hemidiaphragmatic paralysis, which will, on a chest x-ray, look like a, a unilateral elevation of the diaphragm. But other types of complications that post-surgical kids are potentially going to be showing up into your ED, the the three biggest that come to mind are, one, arrhythmias. Uh, Most of these surgical procedures are going to involve some type of repair of heart muscle and in a way that interferes with your normal electrical pathways. What's the most common arrhythmia? Uh, Mostly tachyarrhythmias. Non-specific then. Correct. So the other type of uh, issue is going to be any sort of stenosis at the surgical site. And so just like with any time that you have a surgical procedure done and the scarring that can happen thereafter, you can get scarring that essentially pulls down and re-narrows areas that have previously been open. And in those situations, what you're seeing is essentially a return to a pre-surgically corrected physiology. So you may see a sudden drop in saturations. Hmm. And then, as always, thinking back to Virchow's triad um, and... The turbulence of flow that is created in a lot of these situations and the prothrombotic state. So thrombosis would be the other big concern that, that comes along in the post-surgically corrected kid. I appreciate your proper German pronunciation of uh, <laughs> Birko. Not, uh, not the southern way I learned at med school, which is Virchow. <laughs> <laughs> well, my uh, pathology instructor's last name was Friedlander. So. <laughs> So moving on, uh, talk a little bit further, especially about shunts. Yeah, the last one that I really want to make sure that you guys think about is kids that have had a BT shunt or Blalock-Talsig shunt. And this is a, a palliative procedure that creates passive flow into the pulmonary circuit. But it's going to create a similar sort of machinery-type murmur that you associate with a patent ductus arteriosus. That is to be expected in these kids that have a shunt, and you should hear that. However, if you do not, that is highly concerning for a clot formation within that BT shunt and is a life-threatening emergency. That is the only conduit by which those lungs are getting uh, any sort of blood flow to them in order to generate oxygenated blood. So if you do not hear that murmur on a kid that only has a BT shunt in place, then you should be on the phone right away with a pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon, potentially an interventional radiologist uh, to go in and do something like TPA at the site of the lesion and talking to a pediatric intensivist as well, arranging for uh, immediate transport. Just for our listeners, especially the far out adult emergency providers who haven't taken care of kids in a while, can you just briefly remind them what the BT shunt? I know you said it's palliative, but the specific indications, I guess, or what type of kids you'd see that in? Yeah, these are these are typically going to be in children that are uh, hypoplastic left heart or that are in a staged repair type situation, undergoing a Glenn and then a Fontan. But this is a way of restoring flow to the pulmonary circuit. Great. Sounds awful. <laughs> Hey, let's switch some gears. Um, one thing I know that's going to be going to be more common on the boards than in real life for sure is going to be these TET spells for a pre-corrected tetralogy of fellow patient. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this used to be a much bigger thing in the past when they would wait until kids were a lot older and larger and more capable of tolerating surgery. But nowadays, the palliative repairs and tetralogy are being done at younger and younger ages that 
you really don't see these quite as much anymore. So this is really going to be in, in your pre-corrected or undiagnosed kid. And essentially what's happening is you have a physiologic worsening of the obstruction to blood flow into the pulmonary circuit. So going back to your med school days and remembering the, the four typical lesions that make up Tetralogy of Fallot, you have your large ventricular septal defect, you have a right ventricular outflow obstruction, you have an overriding aorta, and you have a right ventricular hyperplasia or, or, or overgrowth or uh, hypertrophy of, of the right ventricle. All the terms are correct. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... A lot of times these are going to occur in situations of emotional distress. Uh, suddenly a kid whose SATs are normally in the uh, upper 70s, low 80s are, are tanking on you. And so your immediate approach to this is, one, give the kid some oxygen. I mean, oxygen, you got to remember, is still a medication um, and is going to have a fairly potent vasodilatory effect on the pulmonary circuit. So it's going to increase and make it easier for blood to flow into that space. Two, get that kid as calm as possible, whether that's pacifier, an iPad, whatever it is that's going to make this kid settle down um, and reduce their work of breathing and reduce their level of distress is going to improve your situation. And then there's the knee chest maneuver of just getting them tucked up into a ball. And the whole point of that is to increase your vascular resistance. So it's harder to pump blood out into systemic circulation and kind of shunting it more in the direction of the pulmonary circuit. If those efforts, however, don't work, then you got to start moving on to other things. And first is going to be give the kid some pain medication. That can be done as an IV or intramuscular dose of morphine, but that painful process in itself is going to be fairly distressing. So your other alternative mm-hmm. would be to do intranasal fentanyl. That's a good point about the painful part of giving the shot. After that, you also want to just give the kid a little bit of IV fluid if you already have established that IV. And that's, again, just to increase your preload and and correct any sort of volume discrepancy there. And at this point, you should have probably already sent a page out to your pediatric cardiologist before (laughs) moving on to the next steps. But uh, oftentimes, the next things you're going to be moving in the direction of would be IV propanolol or esmolol. And then after that is going to be IV phenylephrine to increase mm-hmm. your uh, systemic resistance. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like the, the boards will love these order of things you have to do. They love it. Yeah. But honestly, they're not going to go to like the fifth line. There's no way on a board question they're going to ask you this or on oral boards. What they're going to do is probably ask you the first two. Would you agree with that? They're going to probably ask the knee chest position, which everybody knows. Absolutely. Calming the patient and then probably morphine, fentanyl next. And that's probably where it's going to stop. Yeah. Um, I don't think they're going to go to the IV propanolol because they know. I mean, you just said it. This is where a pediatric cardiologist would come into play. These are things where someone else is going to be telling you what the dose is because you're not going to remember and you're not really going to have time to look it up. and Which is totally fine with me. <laughs> Actually, you know, funny story about this. Um, you'd appreciate this. When I was a med student, so I was a third-year med student on Peds Cards rotation, and I was at uh, I was at the clinic one day working with a pediatric cardiologist, and I remember he he gave us like a homework assignment. He was very intense, and he gave they us homework. Assi- are. Yeah, they always are. He gave us a, a homework assignment, and it was basically like, I want you to look up how to treat a tet spell, and email email me back the response. Here's my email. I said okay. And it was me and another student on that day. And so I emailed him my response. And then he goes through, he emails me back and he says, well, uh, you need to correct this, this, and this. We'll do differently. You know, basically he, him and I had a back and forth about 10 emails about how I was doing something either wrong or something he wanted me to modify or what's the physiology behind the morphine, all that. And, you know, I come to the next rotation like a month later with this student. And I'm like, 
geez, that guy was uh, Dr. Zone, so he sent me like 10 emails back and forth. He's like, I didn't get a single one. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, well, that makes me feel like an idiot. He's like, no. He's like, he probably looked at my answer and said, there's no hope for this guy. (laughs) Oh, to be written off. We can't underscore how important knowing about death spells is. Uh, That's Honestly, I think that's really the the biggest uh, morsel of education coming from this podcast today. Everything we're talking about is important, but... Gosh, if you had to take away just that's an easy board question right there. They're going to ask you. It's going to come up. Yeah. It is a thing of the past, but hopefully soon your test will be too. <laughs> oh, wise words. All right. Let's go to uh, our last part here, which is talking about the undiagnosed CHD patient. Yeah. So these are certainly the most terrifying of these because you're really heading into the complete unknown. And these kids can get really sick really fast. So it's probably easier to think of them in into three separate categories, and, and those would be the ones that are showing up in shock, and that's typically going to be your ductal-dependent lesions, and we'll talk more about that in a second, versus those that are showing up just appearing cyanotic or looking pretty blue. And, and when I talk about cyanosis, I mean more central cyanosis uh, as opposed to peripheral, so, so around the lips, around the face, uh, but not so much out at the hands and the fingers. Um, that's fairly common in, in all kids and in young infants and neonates. And then lastly, your kids that are presenting with symptoms consistent with congestive heart failure. So let's talk about the shock presentation first. So these kids are going to be really in the first one to two weeks of life, and they're going to look sick. And it's going to be almost impossible to differentiate this from other types of shock that may show up. Your workup is going to be fairly broad and fairly substantial, including doing your LP and starting broad-spectrum antibiotics because this could be of infectious etiology. But the first thing that you should be thinking of is when you see that kid crashing in front of you, SATs that initially started a little bit low, then start going to zero. You really don't have time to wait for a definitive answer of an echo to tell you for sure where is the cardiac lesion. And you're better off starting a medication like prostaglandin E1 in order to maintain patency of that ductus arteriosus. So going back to your ductal dependent lesions, You can divide them up into right-sided and left-sided lesions. The right-sided ones are typically going to be things like tricuspid atresia and severe tricuspid atresia. Nothing is moving through into that pulmonary circuit. Critical pulmonic stenosis, same sort of deal. Or severe tetralogy of flow where you have a near-complete obstruction of that right ventricular outflow tract. Your left-sided lesions are going to be things like critical coarctation of the aorta or critical aortic stenosis. Uh, or a hypoplastic left heart in which your ability from the left side to pump blood out into systemic circulation is severely obstructed and therefore dependent upon overflow of blood coming from the pulmonary circuit um, through that intrauterine connection that was meant to be there of the ductus arteriosus. So this thing uh, naturally begins to close within the first few days but can be delayed as, as long as a couple weeks. And so functionally keeping these kids alive. And so as it is in the process of closing, um, that is when you see the severe decline in their state of health. So when it comes to starting someone on prostaglandin, you really want to start with a low dose. This is where going big or going home is actually going (laughs) to lead to a lot of 
bigger problems. So, so with, with prostaglandin, your goal is lowest dose possible that keeps that ductus arteriosus open. Most textbooks will quote a range of 0.05 micrograms per kilogram per minute up to 0.1. But as I learned, you can actually start a little bit lower on 0.02 to 0.05 uh, micrograms per kilogram per minute. And the reason for this is, one, to avoid the, the complications that come with too high of a dose, which are typically going to be hypotension and apnea. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just so <laughs> So awful situation to be in. Yeah. Can you imagine like giving this and you're like, well, it's gonna maybe solve one problem, probably cause another one. <laughs> this totally might make it absolutely worse. So speaking of uh, these side effects here, the hypotension apnea, you hear so much about really, and I've seen sources actually say you should just intubate these people. What are your thoughts on that? I would highly caution against that. I mean, okay. think of all of the physiologic changes that occur once you intubate someone. You've increased that intrathoracic pressure. You've decreased the preload. And so many of these kids are going to be preload dependent in order to be able to, to maintain pulmonary blood flow. Mm -hmm. So you may make your situation a whole lot worse by intubating them. Not to mention all the physiologic changes that go into RSI medications that mm -hmm. most of these kids can't tolerate. So of course. Start with low, increase as you need to, but really keep it as low as dose possible in order to maintain SATs in the in the upper 70s, low 80s. Yeah, you might have to intubate these patients, and then you hear some people say, oh, they, they get apneic and hypotensive. Why well, don't just prevent that and intubate them? But you're right. It's a complex process. Yeah, that's totally in our wheelhouse, too. Right. I mean, it's, it's our tool of the trade, and not being so quick to jump towards that step because it might make your, your situation a whole lot worse. Right, absolutely. So let's shift gears uh, here and talk about our next phase, which is the cyanosis portion of these undiagnosed CHD patients, and really talk about two things. One, the unrealistic goal I feel like people have, especially in the emergency department, for their goals of oxygenation, and they panic when they see certain numbers. And the second thing, of course, would be the really high yield, both clinically and board relevant, uh, hyperoxia test. Can you tell me more about that? So yeah, uh, I mean, a lot of times we, we love to see that 100% because it gives us a lot of reassurance, but really 100% shouldn't be your goal in these kids. And going back to what we said earlier, I mean, oxygen itself is a medication. It, it has uh, vasodilatory effects on that pulmonary circuit. Um, and in some lesions, particularly your left to right shunts, where you're already dealing with an increased amount of flow into the pulmonary vasculature, can make the situation a whole lot worse. So when you don't really know what baseline SATs are, uh, having an ideal goal, goal of 90 to 95 percent is okay. In situations where you're highly suspicious of this being one of the five cyanotic lesions, and for your review, we'll go back over those real quick of you know, you have your truncus arteriosus, you have your transposition of the great vessels, your tricuspid atresia, tetralogy of Fallot, or total anomalous pulmonary venous return, or TAPFER. In those five lesions, really the best you're going to get is anywhere from 75 to 85%. So of old, we are often taught that, you know, there's the hyperoxia test that we can do in order to not definitively diagnosed, but highly suggest that's probably one of the lesions that you're dealing with as the reason for why your kid is so hypoxemic in your emergency department. And so the hyperoxia test involves you placing the kid on 100% oxygen for 10 minutes. And what you should expect to see is at least a 10% rise in their pulse ox or on their ABG to see at least 150 
millimeters of mercury increase in their PaO2. Um, however, if you still see a persistently low PaO2, then uh, it's highly suggestive of having uh, one of these lesions. The only difficulty with um, doing this test is the only way that you can actually really get to 100% oxygenation is you either got to intubate the kid or you got to have a special kind of hood that keeps all of that oxygen within and around their head. Um, but you can get pretty darn close with a non-rebreather. Mm-hmm. And you know, just to emphasize again, these the purpose of this test is really it's, again, we have this large differential in these kids. And you're going to be seeing these kids come in, you got to be thinking, is this a respiratory issue? Is this a cardiac issue? Is this a hematologic disorder? Is this just sepsis? And the respiratory might be one of the more difficult ones to diagnose with. Absolutely. I mean, that still leaves open the possibility of, you know, foreign body in the airway as a reason for the obstruction, mm-hmm. um, and for your lack of ability to oxygenate. Most other space-occupying lesions you're going to be seeing on the portable chest x-ray that you're, mm-hmm. you're going to be getting on these kids as well. But if they don't have any response whatsoever to exogenous oxygen, then then it's highly suggestive that there's some sort of mixing physiology that's going on that's preventing the ability to actually raise that level of oxygenation within the patient. Mm-hmm. One uh, aspect that I saw from when I read on this before we talked today was the probably the most sensitive and specific variables in the history for CHF. And that included a history of feeding less than three ounces or spending le- greater than 40 minutes per breast. That was a concern for CHF. Yeah. Abnormal respiratory pattern with a resting rate of breathing greater than 60. A diastolic murmur, of course, it's pretty obvious. And then hepatomegaly. And those were the, probably the most common offenders of things you see in the history. Would you agree with those as big catch items? Yeah, definitely on the feeding. Um, yeah. So with congestive heart failure, you're going to see a lot more feeding disruption. That's where those questions of like sweating with feeding come into play or disruptions in feeding. A lot of the typical symptoms that you go off of in manifestation of congestive heart failure in adults, like the peripheral edema or jugular venous distension, you really can't see on these super chubby mm-hmm. little babies. And it's not going to be nearly as evident. Mm-hmm. Um, but the hepatomegaly is, is one of those physical exam findings that you got to feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Also looking and listening carefully for those extra systolic sounds, particularly your S3 and your S4, um, would go along with this. Wheezing and, you know, the wet lung sound can sometimes be very difficult to differentiate between something like bronchiolitis. So it's in adjunct to these other physical exam findings. Uh, would help raise your concern. And this is one spot where the ability of you know our skills and the use of point-of-care ultrasound uh, could actually come into play. Uh, one of the things I saw on the chest x-ray was, I only have to say this just for boards. This is so not reliable in real life. The snowman sign, which is classic with Tapfer, the total anomalous pulmonary venous return, the boot-shaped heart of Tetralogy of Fallot, the egg on a string for transposition of the great vessels. Again, these are things that are not reliable, but I wouldn't hang your hat on these ever, but these are things that are just, gosh, they've been hammered since step one that you just have to see that picture and recognize it. Getting into the last topic, which is a CHF. One thing I wanted to mention was the reliability of BNP, and you can add a little more on this, but the from what I've been reading, the BNP might be helpful. It's about 70% sensitive on average, 90% specific. Of course, it's more in general. But tell me more about these kids in, in, in terms of how they present with quote-unquote congestive heart failure presentations and where we see those. So most of the time, this is going to be a little bit later in life, so not until two to four months uh, after birth, where you've been dealing with this prolonged overflow 
of these oftentimes left to right uh, lesions in which you've got increased flow into that pulmonary circuit that is then leading to downstream complications. In addition to those exam findings, uh, the absolutely I agree, the BMP is not entirely as reliable as what you can see with adults, but it is still a useful adjunct and will be some helpful information when you're having conversations with your pediatric cardiologist because uh, it helps direct them in terms of the severity of, of the presentation. Um, but other things that you're going to be getting are chest x-ray and looking for signs of increased vascularization and, and uh, fluid in the interstitial spaces. Uh, but that can look remarkably similar to uh, other disease processes such as uh, bronchiolitis. And this is a point where I think um, point-of-care ultrasound can actually come into play and and doing a quick uh, lung exam, uh, looking for things like your B lines uh, to help differentiate uh, between other uh, infectious processes involving the lungs. Uh, and then lastly, when it comes to treatment for congestive heart failure, of course, this is going to be after you've had a conversation with your pediatric cardiologist, but you know, just like in adults, the mainstay is going to be offloading that fluid, and Lasix is just as effective in children. This was awesome. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to really outline such a good approach to these patients, both these surgically corrected patients, which I've never really heard of at all. No one's talking about that. So really important that we focused on the complications of these post-surgical kids. We went through the TET spells. Definitively, that is classically going to be a test question. And finally, we talked about your initial approach to your undiagnosed congenital heart disease patient, recognizing, I've seen a lot of different tables on these, by the way, and they some, some people divide them up into weeks of presentation, which isn't that helpful because it could vary a lot when certain kids present. So I, I liked your way. Very good talk overall. Uh, we appreciate you coming in to join well, us. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Hopefully this was helpful. Absolutely. And that's another bomb delivered. Thanks for listening to this special episode with our special guest. We thank Dr. Watkins again for joining us and his expertise on this very complicated subject. Remember, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at EMBoardBombs. We have the same handle at EMBoardBombs on Instagram as well. We're also on Facebook. Please drop us an Apple review. We're really trying to add these up more. So please, please, please drop an Apple review. All this content is free. We do all this stuff out of the kindness of our hearts. So please. The reviews really help us. They boost us in the ratings. If there's a particular topic you want, let us know. We promise we'll get to it. See you next time for the action, and check out our airway module again on our website. It's free. It's awesome. It's gotten huge uh, Twitter publicity. Check us out. See you next time.